Hello and welcome to NDA, the show where I guess I argue with creators about the creator economy. Renee Ritchie, welcome to NDA. I'm Dave Wiskus. We've known each other for years, but this is my new podcast where I'm talking to people from within the creator economy about the creator economy, discussing, pontificating, maybe arguing a little bit about the way things are, how they got here, where to go from here, and what it all means. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. I love that you're podcasting again. I'm okay with it. <laughs> you're okay with it? Uh, no, I, I've always enjoyed the insights that you brought to the podcast industry, and I'm going to say a lot of not so nice things later, so I want to preface it by just getting you in a happy mood to start with. Well, you and I, we, we both remember fairly clearly that I got myself in trouble a long time ago by being a little bit too honest uh, about my thoughts on a different industry. I, I feel like that's a virtue here rather than anything else. So hopefully that plays out better than the last time. I want to explore it and I want to be critical. I don't want this industry and podcasts like this to just be filled up with people who have something to sell and are trying to convince you that you should buy their NFTs or their courses or whatever. Like Having some critical analysis and some people disagreeing with each other, I think is important. That's honestly my biggest fear because you have the word creator economy itself. And for some people, especially for creators, it feels like we're finally getting our seat at the table. We're creating new businesses. We're trying new things. But for other people, it feels like almost predatory. Like there's a bunch of VCs who have fed off Silicon Valley for a decade. And now they see a new emerging wealthy type of business where they just want to sink their fangs into. As much opportunity as it has, there's also that danger inherent to it. What do you think that danger looks like? Right now, it looks like there's a whole bunch of industries that have sprung up around creators that I think are helpful. Like there's people who can help you with thumbnails, with editing, with production, with like agencies that can help you with management, with business. If there's any part of being a creator that you're not good at, I mean, everyone always tells me I should get an editor, but I can edit. So especially when I started, I felt like I had that handle, but I am terrible at business. I have no idea how any of that works, not especially keen to learn. So I got an agency and that allowed me to be a creator. But I think other people look at it and they see the income that creators creators are getting. And we saw it originally with MCMs, the early days of MCMs, where they just wanted to take everything. Like the more exploitative side of venture capital, where they just want to get in, uh, extract as much value as they can and leave you with sort of like a hollow shell at the end. Oh, hang on one second here. You, you say, well, I don't need an editor. I can edit. I don't know, man. I can, I guess, change the oil in my car. I can paint my house. That doesn't mean that doing those things is the best use of my time. That's fair. But I was thinking from like Rene when he just became a creator or when he just quit his tech media job and was starting from nothing. And those were things I felt like I could handle, but they wouldn't let me build a career. I absolutely need an editor to continue to grow. But at the very beginning, when I was looking at my skill set and saying, like, can I even make videos? Like, I knew I could just produce a video. It was everything after that that I felt I couldn't do. Yeah. No, I agree with you there. I think that there's a big difference between the tools that you have to you know, start a business. And when we think about being a creator, starting a channel on YouTube, if you intend for it to be a commercial venture, if you plan to make money, you're building a business, whether you're thinking about it in those terms or not. 
I know there are plenty of creators, many of whom I adore and work with, who kind of see the capitalism side of being a YouTuber as gross or icky, and they intentionally outsource that to me so that they can, you know, not think too hard about it. You might not be a vegetarian, but somebody is definitely killing that chicken. Yeah, absolutely. But like, even like looking at you, you came out of a design background. So if you were starting something new, let's say it wasn't your main business, you started a new band or you had an idea for something else, you could sit down and, and come up with a couple brand identity ideas or a logo or something. That part you could handle. But there are probably other things that you would still need to find people for. And I think that the stuff that you can handle at least gets you a step along the way to where you want to go. Yeah, I think that the interesting thing, and I touched on this a minute ago, and listeners are probably going to hear me say this a thousand times. This has never been done before. It has never before been possible to reach this many people to get this scale of distribution without a deal. Unsigned bands weren't able to just upload their music to Spotify and potentially be heard by millions of people 50 years ago. And frankly, they still can't. But on YouTube, an unsigned band, air quotes, of independent creator can do that. And that video can find an audience without the creator themselves putting a ton of effort into it. That machine is incredible. But it means that the people who are succeeding sometimes might be taking the wrong lessons away from their own success or assuming that because my videos get lots of views, I must be great at everything or my videos get 300,000 views. Therefore, I am a YouTube god, ignoring the fact that those videos with some tweaking might be getting 3 million views. Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. My story was just that I had a friend, you might know him, who kept encouraging me to do YouTube at first and then to go independent and do YouTube. And the fact that YouTube exists allowed me to do that. I went indie right when the pandemic started, when lockdown started, and I can't think of any other time or any other space where I could successfully do that. And thanks to working on YouTube, I managed to make a better living for myself than when I was a product marketer or when I was an editorial director for a big tech network. And that opportunity, to your point, is entirely new. People can take what they're passionate about and execute on it. They can find an audience that will build them. Not everyone's going to be a megastar, but the whole, and I'd love to talk to you about this more because I think it's one of the things that you really keyed on to early, this middle class, creator middle class or working class, we can make sustainable lives for ourselves. The question in my mind always is like, what are the tools that I don't know, the college kid who wakes up in the morning with an idea, spends all day obsessing over that idea, filming things, writing things, making things with their friends, shooting stuff on whatever cheap camera they can get their hands on or with their iPhone or doing voiceover on the stock footage they got from some stock footage site and just making a thing that they're really excited and obsessive about and then putting it out into the world and seeing what could happen with it, trying to emulate the things that they see, the, the YouTubers that they watch, trying to do things using their own voice. What tools do those people need to better understand what it is they're really doing? How do they grow their businesses? How do you develop a career? And most kids interviewed or polled say that they want to be a YouTuber or an influencer, a TikToker when they grow up. It's the most popular answer now. But I think that a lot of people see, I don't know, Mr. Beast. They look at Jimmy and they think, well, I must make videos like his so that I can be as successful as him, which I don't know. There's 10,000 people out there right now trying to make Mr. Beast videos. And what every one of them is going to be missing is the giant pile of money that Jimmy started with and his obsession with getting every last drop out of retention. Unless you have that drive, that single-mindedness, you're not going to get there. So for you, what is the ideal? How do you get there? And what are you missing? Knowing that you should hire an editor, knowing when to hire an editor, knowing how the algorithm works 
having contacts, connections within the platform itself. All of these are things that it's harder to democratize those pieces so that when you democratize the platform, you attract a lot of new voices, but it also attracts a lot of naivete. And the tribal knowledge that comes out of that can end up being, I don't want to say destructive, even hampering progress, I don't think is quite fair because things are progressing so quickly in this industry. But I think there's potential there that is untapped and there is a lot of opportunity for predators to come in and take advantage of people in the meantime. There's a lot to unpack there. Like, first of all, absolutely. Like you see somebody on top of a mountain, you have no idea how they got there. Maybe they ran straight up. Maybe they circled around it eight, nine, 12, 150 times. Maybe they took a very strange route all the way up the mountain. You have no idea. You just see them there. And maybe the strategy isn't like, I'm just going to run as fast as I can and try to get to them. And the second part, I think one of the things that's a struggle for a lot of people is that yes, YouTube, the creator economy, TikTok, all of these things are new. They are fresh. They have democratized access to audience, but there are many of the same challenges and struggles that have existed in other audience-based businesses for a very, very long time. Like playing basketball, super easy. Becoming an NBA athlete, super, super hard. Or people who think maybe I'm pigeonholed, like I'm going to YouTube and I can't just make any video I want. You've worked in music before, like bands will get pummeled by their audiences if they try to go too far from the expectations of the genre that the audience already defined them in. There are all of these things like Chris Evans can make Avengers, get Avengers box office and Avengers money, but he can choose to make Knives Out and he won't get anywhere nearly that money or that audience. And he knows that and he understands that. But sometimes I think on YouTube, we just expect every video should by divine right, get all the views. And I think because YouTube made audience so easy, because TikTok made it so easy, we almost have a reverse entitlement or we don't see the traditional struggles that artists have always gone through. I don't think that's reverse entitlement. I think it's just straight up entitlement. <laughs> I think that there's a common misconception. Creators think that the algorithm or the platform owes them views. All of my other videos got a million views. This one didn't. That's your fault. You're screwing me. You're hurting my business. And what they miss is you only have those views because the platform gave them to you. <laughs> YouTube versus podcasts. Because you and I, we're a couple years older than a lot of the whippersnappers on the YouTube. Yeah. I don't just mean like in age, but I mean like our media consumption and our media creation habits are different. You and I have spent years working on podcasts together in a podcast industry, in the, the tech industry, where everything is like, you know, people sitting around having unscripted conversations about their phones. <laughs> yes. The amount of work, if you want to start a podcast, not even just a tech podcast, you want to start any podcast, the barrier to entry is lower. You need to have audio editing software and some skill. You need to have a microphone that sounds okay. You need to have something to say and the time to do it. Like there's not a ton of equipment or expertise that you need, but that means with the barrier being so low, anyone can do it. And there's no single algorithmically driven platform for podcasts. So people like you and me, we were out there making shows and just like, hoping that we could like promote them on our Twitter accounts and maybe people would listen. And if we could get 5,000 people to listen to us talk about the CW Arrowverse shows, we were thrilled. But we had to go out and convince every one of those people to listen. On YouTube, you upload a video about your thoughts on whatever, and the robot puppy is out there, you know, starting to, to test and see who might like that video. And it could find an audience of a million people while you're asleep. And I think that's where the entitlement comes from. The huge difference there, especially back then, because I know people are working on it now, but back then, maybe your show got on one of the iTunes featured pages because that was everything back then. And maybe you got some initial acceleration off of their rankings. But if somebody watched our show about like The Flash, there wouldn't be a bunch of other episodes about The Flash in the sidebar 
when they came back to iTunes, there wouldn't be a bunch of other episodes about The Flash that would help them discover different shows about the same subject they liked. If I did an iPhone episode, John Gruber's iPhone episode and Marquez Brownlee's iPhone episode wouldn't be in the sidebar for me to discover and maybe enjoy, maybe subscribe to, maybe watch a lot of. But YouTube does all that. Mm -hmm, You can be a brand new creator and put up a video and because someone likes something similar, they'll discover you. And that difference is from like, you know, three people listening to your show to millions potentially listening to it. Yeah. If you're finding success on a platform where that success is, I don't want to say handed to you, but let's be honest. Let's pick on Tom Scott, who I'm a huge fan of Tom's work. I like the guy as a person. I count him as a friend. I have nothing bad to say about Tom Scott. I think that Tom Scott is like 1960s era BBC documentary style show host trapped in a YouTuber's body. He was born in the wrong era. He would 100% agree with me. (laughs) He sees the world around him through sort of this old lens, which I think is his charm. I think that's what makes him work. He's also savvy enough and smart enough to adapt his style and like his thumbnails and his titles to the way modern audiences work. And that's why he's still killing it. He's a guy who's not compromised his values, but he's found a way to make his values and the realities of commerce today work together. Yes. But let's go back in time. If he had been born earlier in the last century and was his current age in, say, the 60s or 70s, if his goal was to make the kinds of things that he makes today and he was inspired in the same ways that he is today and he wanted to build that career, his path is a lot harder. He would have to probably go through media training and journalism school and work his way up through the ranks of BBC if he can even get a job there, if he can even get picked, and then slowly get to a place where maybe he could be on camera talent and he'd be doing small segments. And then, and then, and then maybe he gets his own show. And even then he couldn't pick his own topics half the time because that's a lot of the producers and executive producers have enormous amount of control over that. Right, right. And he wouldn't own it and he wouldn't be able to syndicate it onto other networks himself to collect more upside. There's a million things about that world that are different. I'm not saying that Tom doesn't understand this. I actually think he does. But I think it is very easy for creators who find success to feel as if that success had somehow like preordained for them. They just deserve this because they're great. The participation trophy of algorithm generated views. I think that's one of the early things. Like when I started on YouTube, I just saw it as a faceless, heartless machine. You know, I feared it. It created anxiety. I had no idea. Like I would upload a video, it would do well, and I'd upload another video, it wouldn't do badly. And I had no idea what the difference was. I was completely ignorant about it. So I felt powerless. And when you start to learn how it works, you know, I talked to you, I talked to Todd Beaupre, I talked to like people way smarter than me about it. You come to understand, no, it's like, think about the audience and think about what you're doing and be intentional about it and package it and all of these things. Then you start to, when you start to focus on the humans, I think that also humbles you. And you start to realize that everything I'm doing is dependent on these humans. I do understand, you know, it's like, goes back to like Christopher Reeves always felt typecast, you know, when he was Superman, that, that he was trapped in that image forever. And on YouTube, it can feel like you're trapped in a channel. I think because the name channel to some people implies like I should be able to have a variety of shows like the ABC channel does or the Disney channel does when a channel or an account on TikTok or Instagram, those are much more like a show. Like you put up something and an audience is attached to that thing and their expectations are based on what you have done historically there. And some of them will give you a little bit of leeway, but others just like bands previously, or just like actors who do very different roles, 
they will not always accept you and everything. And I think that's something that's hard to learn as a creator as well, because we immediately think the audience is there for us and wants anything us. And that's not, that's not the case, except for like a tiny, the same as Hollywood, except for a tiny, tiny few very charismatic individuals. So what do you think the solution is? What are the tools that you plan to build? What are the tools that you think should be built? What are you doing about this problem? You're in the seat now, man. You're the creator liaison. You're out there. You're talking to creators. You're hearing what the problems are. You've been within uh, Standard Nebula for years now hearing what we think about things. You're getting new voices in the mix. What infrastructure do you think needs to be created to account for this? So that's the struggle, right? Like for me, like the easy answer is education. Like the more that you can talk to somebody, engage with them and educate them, the more you demystify, uh, you remove misconceptions, misinformation. You can always see that light in their eye. And I'm sure you saw it in, in my eye, you know, many times in the past. But that is such like a brute force activity where you sometimes have to go creator by creator on the platform side, especially because that's where every creator goes, where you can look at what they're doing and what they're struggling with and maybe surface things for them that would be helpful. And like Creator Studio it has begun to do that. It'll tell you, you know, you're getting less views because fewer viewers are viewing, which you know sometimes is almost comical sometimes. They're building on that and they're working on it to try to give better insights. Like your subscribers have clicked less on this. And I think if we massage that into your regular viewers have clicked less on this because they're not as interested in this topic, it starts to hint you towards, oh, what are they interested in? And I know I've seen you in conversations with Jimmy before. When we started providing a CTR, click-through information, it just unlocked so much more for him in YouTube because he could figure out why people were choosing one thing over another. And we've talked about A-B testing now. And I think that will help creators to learn like what's an effective thumbnail. Because now we see people like Patch, like Tirzu, change the thumbnail and the video just explodes. But sometimes other people change it. They don't see very much difference. But no matter what, it always feels like a guessing game. Like, should I try this? Will I try this? And I know you're a big fan of data, but where we can actually give people data on this, maybe they can self-teach a little bit. First, you have to teach them how to process that data, I guess. Everything is a cottage industry to a cottage industry right now. But do you think that there's like a future cohort of startups built around just simply helping creators process the god awful buckets of information that are tucked away behind the scenes? Looking at the YouTube studio, and the YouTube studio is not the worst offender, but it's the thing nearest and dearest to our hearts for data. If, if you use Twitch, if you use Instagram, if you use Twitter, like any of these things can, through various mechanisms, give you analytics. Almost all of them are meaningless at a first glance. Almost all of them are, are just so impossible to parse. Do you think that maybe uh, part of the solution is, is building tools around just knowing which things to even look at first? Yeah. And I think like data without context is meaningless. It shows you a number. It doesn't say you're not doing enough. It doesn't say you're doing too much. Like a lot of it is left to interpretation. And there are people. You know, we have mutual friends who are amazing at interpreting that kind of data, giving creators really actionable things that they can draw on it. But if, if you don't understand that whole world, like how to interpret analytics, they are really just numbers and you can make a whole bunch of really bad decisions based off misunderstanding them as well. So I think that like building out that context around them is super important. The industry to support that, I think it's going to have to mature over time. Like in, in a lot of industries, there are really good vocal coaches or really good acting coaches. You know, I listen to mutual friend John August's podcast with Craig Mazin, and you know, they'll talk about some really good programs they went to, and they'll talk about all these fly-by-night 
things I just want to take people's money and review their scripts for them or something. So I think there's going to be a bunch of minefields between there and like a really mature creator infrastructure or support system. But I think we'll get there. I think that YouTube as a platform is unfairly maligned at times. Again, it's the entitlement of uh, you took away the views you gave me, therefore you're evil, (laughs) which I don't see it that way. Some of this is on YouTube to improve the education, if for no other reason, not because YouTube owes it to creators, but because if YouTube wants to maintain its position, it needs to foster better relationships with the creators. Otherwise, TikTok and Spotify and a thousand others are going to come out of the woodwork and start building out their video streaming components. The Spotify is out there right now. They're building a video platform. They're courting creators. So at some point, somebody builds something that takes significant market share away from YouTube, unless YouTube does more to build those relationships and, and maintain a sort of spiritual exclusivity with the, the creators who call themselves YouTubers. What tools do you think YouTube needs to build? I mean, that's always something that's top of mind because that thing about being too big to fail is just never true. And you never, you never see your replacement coming, you know, going from like uh, Yahoo to Alta Vista to, to Google to Facebook, like you never see the next big thing, or at least you don't always see the next big thing. No matter how big or popular or successful you are, it's always a huge mistake to take any of that for granted. And I think investing in creators is an investment in YouTube as well, because better creators more satisfied creators, happier creators, all of those things lead to more and better videos, which yes, benefits creators, but significantly benefits you know YouTube as well. And I'm happy that there is competition. The thing with Spotify and Netflix that I always worry about is that they're single businesses. And we've seen historically single businesses are much more difficult when a company is like multifaceted. Microsoft famously, they competed in so many industries from the years just funded by Windows and office profits. And that gave them a tremendous amount of runway to do these things. And we've seen now with like like Netflix's struggles. I don't want to go too far into that rabbit hole because Instagram has Facebook money and they're struggling too. You know, so you can never take anything for granted. But I think that competition is good because it helps force us to to move forward. And investing in creators from the point of view of making studio not so completely about numbers. Like I think numbers are important. Some people love the numbers. The numbers can't ever go anywhere, but there are so many layers of context we can add to that. Like the new research tab, which shows you what people are looking for who are also watching your videos. The audience tab that shows you what people who watch your videos are also actually watching. All of those things that are completely different than just numbers, I think are gonna be hugely valuable because both of those are kind of abstract by themselves. But if we can build a bridge between what the numbers say and like the sort of actionable things we can surface for you, I think that's when it starts getting really exciting. The gaps that need to be bridged, I think some of those are data, some of those are information, education. I think access to people is also really useful. Getting to know uh, Todd and being introduced to some of the other people inside the firewall over at YouTube. And then you being a friend who comes into this industry and suddenly you make some friends at YouTube. And then when Koval leaves, they're like, you're our guy. And they bring you in. Like, I feel like I'm in this amazing privileged position where I get to know all these incredible creators and the, the access to YouTube staff and executives that I have and the access to you that I have. Not everybody has that. For those people, you don't really know who to turn to. Or if you have a bug, your comments are just disappearing. You don't know what to do. You contact support, but it can feel really isolating. For YouTube, do you think that there's any responsibility to the 
collection of creators to have a different kind of conversation or to build new kinds of relationships? Yeah, I think the issue that any company sufficiently large faces is always just the scale. And what surprised me a lot about getting into YouTube is that when you look at it, the concerns and the issues that creators face are very similar to the concerns and issues that developers face on the App Store or the Google Play Store, for example, just at even bigger scale because there are more creators than there are developers. When you have like millions and millions of creators or millions and millions of developers, millions and millions of apps or billions and billions of videos, it becomes purely a scale problem. And YouTube has something like Team YouTube on Twitter. That team is amazing. Like they go through so many tweets. Often when you're dealing with scale too, people think it can't possibly be human. Like sometimes we're like, you get a manual review. It's like, that was too fast. Can't possibly be human. Or <laughs> yeah. Team YouTube is responding to too many people. Can't possibly be human. They're all human. What I like about YouTube's approach and like my role specifically is that I'm there to address those things on a platform level. So like while Team YouTube, creator support inside of Creator Studio, the YouTube studio are dealing with all these individual cases, I get to look for trends. I get to look for things that are affecting large groups of creators. And then inside YouTube, try to get those things fixed. Like, yes, there will always be another thing because platforms are always changing and issues are always coming up and there's always new kinds of spam or new kinds of policies or new kinds of videos or entertainment formats, all those things. But being able to have, I think, both those elements, but like a team of people who are addressing individual creator concerns but then also somebody whose only job is to try to fix it for as many creators as possible, I think is great. The only issue that I had to learn really quickly is that because there are so many creators, there aren't very obvious answers. On the outside, you're looking at it and you're saying, well, just do this, like just stop this. And then you get inside and you look at it and you're like, oh, but that's going to really hurt this group of creators because they're completely different than this other group that's complaining about it. Very, very few things are complete wins for everybody. A lot of other things are, how can we do as little harm as possible to provide as much benefit as possible? And that sometimes feels, especially externally, like it takes way too long. One of the things I hate the most, the phrases I hate the most, why don't you just? Yes. On the Nebula side, why don't you just add comments? We see it in app reviews all day, every day. People, why don't you just add comments? Why don't you just make this better? Why don't you just, it's like, do you have any idea how hard this is? Do you have any idea what we're building here? I had a conversation earlier with somebody who is in a near-ish beginning stage building a, a software platform. I had said, how do you build this up? And he's like, you know, we'd only need a team of like four people. And I'm like, I can tell you've never worked in software before. <laughs> you think you're going to build a billion dollar software empire with four people total. What about operations? What about server infrastructure? What about server architecture? What about making sure the data pipeline works? You're serving stuff out to a very large audience. You're working with very large data sets. Who's doing the database management? If you have customers, who's supporting those customers? Hell, you need four support people, let alone four people in the company. And we haven't even started talking about the actual development of the software yet, or design, or product management, or project management. At Nebula right now, we've got a team of 30 people working on just making the thing happen. And we're still fairly early stage and we have open recs to hire like double that number of people. But the thought that you're going to build something like, oh, we only need four people. Yeah. Like, well, if that's true, let's say for a second that that's true. If you only need four people, then any four people could do this. Unless you think the idea is so genius, nobody else is going to think of this. And because you'll be first, you'll win. The notion of why don't you just 
it misunderstands how this stuff really works. I remember before I joined uh, YouTube, I was having that issue and still am with uh, impersonation spam. And I made the mistake, that classic mistake of doing that. Why don't they just prevent anyone in the comments from using the same picture that I'm using? <laughs> and then someone else, I forget who piped in, go, yeah, just content ID that. Like content ID is for something very different than that. Like I really felt that energy. Like I got that idea. Uh, and then someone else chimed in and goes, hey, I'm a Gundam channel. I make videos about Gundam. My avatar is Gundam. Pretty much everybody in my comments has an avatar of Gundam. How would that work for us? And I figured, oh, there's probably a ton of channels where that's true. Yeah. Like any celebrity couldn't have a YouTube channel at that point. Yeah. People asking us, why didn't you just add comments? It's like, do you have any idea the shit we would get? Can you post images in those comments or is it just words? If it's images, we need to have a whole team of people who are like sensitivity trained to handle looking at various images that come in. Yeah. Even if it's just the text, there's hate speech, there's scams, there's, there's all sorts of ways that bad actors will craft bullshit to lead you to things. And you'd say like, well, Nebula is a paid platform. No, go read our subreddit. Those are people who pay and they will still like yell at creators or call them names or call each other names in the comments. Yeah. I believe that people are basically good until you turn on comments. <laughs> when people say, why don't you just add comments? What I'm hearing is, why won't you let me speak? Yes. Why don't I have a voice on your platform? And it reminds me of that thread from the Reddit CEO when he was going through and saying, you know, we just want to build wonderful features, but you all keep being horrible to each other. So we have to stop building wonderful features and go in and create all this infrastructure to stop you being mean to each other. And that just grinds everything else to a halt. That sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. Do you think that the relationship between the audience and the creator belongs to the creator, to the platform, or to the audience? So I think it really only exists at the juncture of those things. I think if you take any of those things away, nobody has ownership of it. It's not like, you know, you bought something together and one of you gets to leave with it. It's almost like, like the electric field you make together only exists when you're there. And if you pull apart, it's gone. So I think physically it's on the platform, like those messages are on the platform, but absent the audience and absent the creator, they're meaningless. Well, we've seen for years the creators can take their audience over to Patreon. Some audiences are very entrenched on their platform. If you want them, you have to meet them where they are. Others are more attached to the creator and they'll go to wherever the creator is. There's also people who only use one app versus another and you can build those audiences there. But I think you, you still have to be very empathetic to them and where they are and what their needs are as well. Who has more power in the relationship, do you think? YouTube or the creators? YouTube owns the platform, but YouTube needs creators. You know, like if there were no creators, there'd be no YouTube. That sounds trite, but it's true. And also YouTube needs good quality creators because nobody is going to want to go to a site that has really bad videos. And we see that now. We see people complaining about one app versus another and the quality of the videos. So I think every platform, when you see like how much they want to attract creators, whether it's TikTok or Meta or YouTube, you can see how much value they put on those creators. The platform just has the luxury of having multiple creators where creators only have a few platforms. Well, then who bears the responsibility? Like we've been in conversations where YouTube people have talked about YouTube provides free video hosting. It's like, was that really a feature that we need at this stage of the game? Is that the thing that people are using YouTube for? Just hosting their videos? The relationship is more complex than that. But who bears the responsibility if the creators are unhappy and YouTube is saying, well, those aren't our things to fix. 
And then the creator's like, well, then we're going to leave and go to a platform where the platform itself does want to make us happy. Who bears responsibility in that relationship? Yeah, I think because it's a relationship, it has to be a mutual thing. It has to be like, I'm not suggesting couples therapy for creators by any means, but (laughs) the platform has to be super attentive to creator needs. And creators have to have a, a way of providing that feedback to the platform. And that exists on the platform, uh, but that also exists, you know, on Twitter and other public forums like that. But I think it has to be in the, in the platform's best interests to keep creators happy and to do as much as they can to let creators create. Because again, like, where is Friendster now? Where is MySpace now? For all intents and purposes, they don't exist in creator convert. Like the landscape, much less the conversation. Facebook video goes up and down in conversations. People have a lot of strong feelings about the directions that Instagram is going now. So I think, you know, staying ahead of that is only a benefit. I think that we are surrounded by people who are in their like early to mid 20s who are succeeding on a platform where there's an assumption that they will always be successful. Yeah. And I think you and I can both probably guess that that is not really true. (laughs) There was a moment in history where Tickle Me Elmo was the biggest thing in the world and nothing would ever topple the success of Tickle Me Elmo. Yep. The Masters of the Universe, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers. Cabbage Patch Kids. Pokemon trading cards. Yeah, like all of these things were at one point in time the biggest thing in the universe and nothing will ever topple them. America Online was the biggest thing on the internet. Any of these things were too big. They couldn't possibly. Remember Yahoo? There's a story. Yep. So when you look at somebody like, uh, pick on Jimmy, he's in the number one spot right now. What does his trajectory look like? Do you think it's an endless uphill, the, the chart always goes up and to the right? What do you think five years from now, the landscape of creator success looks like? I think it's going to be similar to existing media form. Some musical acts keep going, like Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, others, like they're one hit wonders, or, or they have a few hits and disappear. Some movie stars, like all the Chris's right now are super big, but there are a lot of actors who have had a few hit movies and then completely disappeared. And Jimmy might end up being like Tom Cruise. Like Tom Cruise is like, what, 60 years old now? And he just made Top Gun Mavericks and still can own box offices around the world. But the Rat Pack started off the same generation as him. Most of them aren't around anymore. You know, Matt Koval just did a, a really good video on sustainability as well. And I think it's something that not a lot of people think about. A lot of people should think about. And it's something you should absolutely plan for. If your trajectory isn't sustainable, like it might be enough for you. Maybe that's great. Maybe you hit like several millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars by your 30s, buy yourself an island, you peace out, that's all you ever wanted. Some people, like the money is nice, but they want the fame, they want the voice, they want the cultural impact. They want to feel like the importance of the positions that they have. And for them, I think like, You've got to be very tactical, like a Tom Cruise or like, you know, a couple of the actors who have gone many, many years or the music artists that have gone many, many years. The Beatles broke up. Yes. Michael Jackson fell out of favor. The biggest artists in the world right now would be who? Taylor Swift? Beyonce? And what were they doing 10 years ago? Well, they weren't the biggest. Okay, who was the biggest 10 years ago? They might still be around, but... Yes. Like Metallica is still around. <laughs> yeah, okay, Metallica. They're a great example. They're still together. They're still out there doing stuff. Are they selling as many records today, is their percentage of cultural impact with each new release as great as it was in the late 80s, early 90s? Hey, Alexandria, would you mind taking a look at record sales for Metallica Records over the last however many? Sure thing. By the way, Alexandria is our editor, engineer, producer person who's keeping the show running in the background. Uh, Alexandria, you want to say hi? Hello, everybody. Probably the most overqualified person on the show, like of, <laughs> of everyone here, like we're over here yaffing, like she's got an Emmy. 
She worked for NASA. Renee, you and I are the dumbest people on this show right now. I hope you realize that. But at least we'll sound good. There we go. Like that's a that's a real thing, not a joke. That's amazing. It's all right. It just kind of hangs out on one of my speakers. There's not a manual on what to do with it. Is it made out of gold? No, it's plated. And I mm. had to put my own together, which apparently they don't all come together already. I had to like screw it together with a screwdriver, which I thought, of course, they do that to the person who works at NASA. But, <laughs> yeah. you, some assembly required. So you grabbed a space shuttle plate and you just twisted the whole thing in. Yeah, I put it together for our group photos and then I realized that it no longer fit in the box. So I just kind of had it sitting in my passenger seat on my way driving home from NASA one day. It was fantastic. Carpool lane. I, you know what? I should have did that. <laughs> That's amazing. An Ikea Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> did it come with Ikea style instructions with like little smiling naked people putting it together with no words? There was straight up no instructions. It came in two pieces and, and then a little baggie taped to the bottom of it that had the screw. But it was missing the washer. So I had to go find a washer to do it. It was wild. Amazing. Alexandria, any luck with the uh, Metallica numbers? Uh, not a concise number, but I did find out that two years ago, Metallica's Black Album randomly reached back onto the Billboard Top 200. Really? Yeah, just randomly did. And they also broke a record on Billboard for having the top five vinyl albums. And that was last year. Not only are they buying more Metallica here recently, but they're buying them in vinyl as well. Based on this, it, the argument could be made that Metallica might still be the biggest, but they're the biggest because they were the biggest and nobody has has yet toppled their cumulative numbers or their cumulative cultural impact. This is interesting for a few reasons. One, metal has fallen out of favor. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to hear you're not going to hear much metal on on the radio, I, I think, these days. And the radio has kind of fallen out of favor. Yes. There's a, there's a bunch of factors all at play here. Not a popular genre in the way that it was. There's probably a lot more competition for the the earballs. There's streaming to contend with. The money is probably different. Wouldn't it be crazy for us to not assume that similar changes happen to our industry? Somebody making explainer videos about logistics and airplanes, is that always going to be something? Will explainer videos be a thing? Will video essays be a thing in five, 10 years? Maybe those formats fall out of favor. Maybe TikTok takes over. And if you can't make your point in one minute, you're just dead. Yeah. Or maybe it's augmented reality where, you know, we're all sitting around each other as part of a large conversation about something. Maybe Wendover is live on top of a volcano in a VR experience in five years. <laughs> what? Maybe Extremities blows up and Sam goes to the most uh, extreme parts of the world and brings you that right to your VR goggles. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get what you mean. Whoever goes and can get the crazy experience that, that you can then literally share that experience. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I think like all those things, like, and then the, the experiences that are the most visceral, the most relatable, like, like I'm sure Undersea will be a huge initial push for that because we've already seen that in the early days of VR, just not very well executed yet. Oh, so it's not virtual reality, it's vicarious reality. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, somebody write that down. I'm, 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 we need to trademark that. There's one more thing I wanted to ask you about before we go. Yes. I've known you for a while, and I've noticed that since taking the new gig, there are voices that you have amplified that I hadn't seen you amplify before. And without naming a particular person, because that's not what this is about, I find it interesting and I'd love to know what your thoughts are there. I think it's always important. And that's why like, I have a personal Twitter account 
I have YouTube liaison account and I have a personal YouTube channel, you know, and I'm going to be doing videos on Creator Insider and YouTube creators and a bunch of those other channels. And this is what this was true when I was at Mobile Nations and iMore as well. And, and maybe I'm just of a generation or of a school that there's like personal things that I like uh, and that I prefer, but there's also professional responsibility that I feel. And previously that like I might go to conferences that are run by groups that aren't my favorite, but they're important to the industry and it's important for me to be there and it's important to the company that I work for that I'm there. Or it might be like we had a whole community initiative uh, at iMore where we tried to like amplify things in the community. And I didn't agree with all of them. And again, not all of them are my favorites, but I felt like it was I was duty bound to make sure I had a large representation of people who were like acknowledged in the industry. And I think this is the same. Like I will always have personal opinions and sometimes those personal opinions will be wrong and I'll learn and grow and change over time. And that might happen the opposite way too, where things I think I like, I'll find out I don't really like those things so much, but I have to keep that version of me detached and like constrained, especially at YouTube scale, because my own lived experience is always going to be incredibly limited especially compared to the incredible diversity of, of stuff on YouTube. And I feel like I just, I have to be open and I have to be, egalitarian is the wrong word. If there's anything that I think is borderline, obviously there are voices that I would never amplify and there are just things that I think are detrimental to the platform or to social networking, all those sorts of things. But that being said, I have to always give the benefit of the doubt in that point and be more encompassing and more embracing than I might be personally. Is there a responsibility that you bear if you feel strongly that something is toxic or misinformation or potentially predatory, do you still feel the obligation, the, the duty to make those things available? Or do you feel a sense of ethical duty to making sure that predators aren't amplified? Yeah. So that like, if it falls at all, like comes even closely adjacent to what I think is, is toxic. Also, I made like a conscious choice not to amplify people who are promoting specific products. Like if someone is doing like a live stream where they're offering like thumbnail evaluations or channel audits or stuff like that, I might suggest like if you're a brand new YouTuber, go there because you'll find a lot of other brand new YouTubers and whether you end up liking, like there's going to be a, a wide variety of people who do that and you'll find some that you vibe with and some that you don't. But you'll also find a community of people who are in a similar situation that you might not have known about. But if someone is like selling uh, like a series or a course, a gizmo, that stuff I'm very careful about. I don't want to recommend, <laughs> I don't want to like be anyone's commercial advertising branch. Right, right. If those are people who in that moment are not doing that thing, but otherwise do, is it possible that amplifying their voice for the thing also validates them in general? Sometimes there are going to be extreme examples that are super easy. But like almost everybody we know has some sort of course or thing that you can buy from them. It seems to be like prerequisite on the creator scorecard. It's like every computer has to have Doom ported to it. Every creator has to have something that like some course or something or some, you know, T-shirt or something that they sell. So like I try to balance it based on on the content at the time, at least the best that I can do. So I'm going to screw up all the time. I'm going to miss people. That's, that's one of my greatest fears is there's probably like still a ton of people I don't know about. And I'm not giving them the opportunity that they should have. So I'm just going to work my way through it as best I can. Well, I'm sure that many people, especially people who might be listening to this and who don't already know you, would love the chance to have a conversation with the creator liaison or reach out to you if they if they have concerns. Do you have a, an open door uh, policy? Do you have office hours? Like, what's the what's the thing? To be determined, I'm I'm still relatively new at this, and I'm trying to figure out 
it's a different situation than Matt Koval, who was at YouTube specifically for eight years before he became creator liaison. He was a creator, but he'd also been inside YouTube for a long time. And I am still like working as a creator. And we do have some defined roles, like Team YouTube handles individual incidents for creators. So like I, I leave that to them. There's way more of them and they're way better at it and they have access to things that I just don't have access to. So for like any individual things or like specific problems, people can go to them. But for platform stuff, like people can just tweet me. I, I'm incredibly responsive. I'm annoyingly, I make the mistake. I, I read the tweets, Dave. I'm, inc I'm incredibly responsive. Never read the tweets. Renee, never read the tweets. I know. I, I have to. If people want to tweet at you, where do they tweet? So personally, it's at Renee Ritchie. And if they have like issues with the platform, like like things that they think should change about YouTube in general, or uh, like just feedback on the platform in general, it's at YouTube Liaison. Well, Renee, thank you very much for giving us all of this good, clean audio that we can use to generate an AI robot that sounds just like you. Oh my God, does that mean that I can be overdubbed on a Wendover video? I'll make some calls. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>